Welcome back to another episode of Nerd Hours. I'm Alice. I'm Dan. And today we'll be talking about some whack nitrogen discoveries over the past few centuries. So nitrogen is present in nearly everything around us, from the majority of the air that we breathe, to the medicine that we use, to even the coffee that we drink. However, nitrogenous substances aren't always safe. From ammonia to ammonium to nitroglycerin, or as you might know it, TNT, many of these chemicals can be very deadly if not properly handled. I mean, I feel like this is just a common thing with most base elements. You are not wrong. Even carbon can be very deadly. Look at cyanide. Also oxygen, bro. Too much just pure O2 can also kill, yes. Yeah. Now, some of the discoveries of nitrogen-containing substances are absolutely insane, and one even led to the creation of the Nobel Prizes, in a story that makes me see the Nobel Peace Prize in a darkly ironic way. That's, um, foreshadowing if I've ever seen any, and I am a little bit worried. You should be. <laughs> ah, fantastic. Now today, I am covering seven of the more interesting stories that range from explosives to caffeine. We will start in 1706 with the discovery of Prussian blue. Yeehaw! Now back in the day, blue was the most difficult dye to produce alongside purple, and it was often saved for royalty. Mm. For painting and long-lasting dye, blue ranked just above purple because surprisingly, just about everything that looks blue in nature turns out that, uh, well, it's not blue when it gets crushed. Blueberries? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Johann Jakob Diesbach was a German dye maker whose name I probably mispronounced and who accidentally stumbled upon this discovery. He was attempting to make a new red dye from cochineal or crushed beetles, but instead he ended up making Prussian blue. Task failed successfully, I guess. It really was. <laughs> so it was found that the most ideal way to make Prussian blue was combining iron and what we now know is cyanide. And cyanide's formula is CN, or one carbon, and one nitrogen atom. Uh, isn't cyanide a poison, though? Yes, it is. Ah, fantastic. <laughs> so Prussian blue was the first long-lasting blue paint. And fun fact, this is why most blue colors in paintings before the 1700s faded entirely and have actually had to be restored by museums and collectors. It was also an effective medical treatment for acute metal poisoning because the iron in Prussian blue would have a chemical reaction with the metal in a person's body and basically trade places with whatever metal was causing problems. As iron is much less problematic in our bodies than, say, some of the other metals that are out there. Mercury? Yes, exactly! <laughs> Very nice. Now, as a disclaimer, please do not try this at home, as there are now many better treatments. There is a reason why it was only used for acute metal poisoning, as it could only be so effective, and it uses cyanide. <laughs> Alright, I was worried for a second. Just like, uh, um, should we be, uh... No. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. Speaking of cyanide, our next discovery was a form of cyanide not even 50 years later. So in 1752, Hydrogen cyanide was discovered by a Swedish chemist whose name I will also be mispronouncing, named Carl Wilhelm Scheel. He was attempting to break Prussian blue down into its basic chemical elements by reacting it with sulfuric acid. If that sounds dangerous, that's because it is. <laughs> 
Very much so. <laughs> now, he created a gas with a strong, peculiar, but not unpleasant odor with a sweet taste. Almonds. And, um, surprisingly, no, this one was hydrogen cyanide. I just, okay, but almonds contain cyanide. Not a lot, don't worry, guys. But, but a bit. Yeah, yes. just, a, just a smidge. Yeah. This was hydrogen cyanide, so yes, this man should have died. And it's a miracle that he did not. I mean, that's just how scientists be sometimes. Oh, just wait until we get into morphine. Yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> he survived. Somehow. Sometimes that's all that matters. <laughs> well, up until the 1900s, science, especially anything involving chemistry, was a very risky business, as people would interact with very dangerous or toxic chemicals without a second thought to their own safety. And speaking of risking their own safety... Let's talk about the grad student who basically overdosed himself and his volunteers because human trials were nothing like they are these days. Yeah, I mean, scientists in the past were just like, what if we just mess with things? Not the smartest way of going about it. So, in 1804, we get into morphine. Now, this was extracted from opium by Friedrich Wilhelm Adam Sertuner. He was looking for a slightly less potent and addictive substance to use as an anesthetic and pain number. And whether he succeeded in this potency and addiction thing, that's up to you to decide. It should be mentioned that he did conduct many animal trials before moving on to human trials. Mans was just trying to graduate as quickly as possible, I feel. He really was. But when he went on to the human trials, he still used many, many times the recommended dosage that we have nowadays during his first attempt, well... which happened to be on himself and some other volunteers. So they were basically incapacitated for over an hour, which is a marvelous job. I mean, let's be fair, no one died, so I would probably consider it at least a partial success. You are wrong. <laughs> Though I didn't really search into how addicted they became afterwards, and well, that's a story for another day. <laughs> Don't even worry about it. Well, speaking of addictive substances, let's fast forward five years to 1809 with caffeine. Yeehaw. Now, caffeine was part of the compound extracted by German chemist Friedlieb Ferdinand Runge, whose name again, I probably mispronounced. My apologies. <laughs> Plants use caffeine as a mild natural pesticide, but just like with spicy things, humans don't really care and eat the plant anyway. That's just how humans be. I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, exactly. Caffeine is actually a very addictive substance, which is why you will often experience things like caffeine withdrawal symptoms when you decrease how much you drink by a large amount. Yikes. Caffeine is used by humans to keep adenine, which is an agonist, from inhibiting the neural receptors that are responsible for your nervous system's activity in the brain. Now that's just a fancy way of saying that caffeine gives most people an adrenaline rush by making the neurons in your brain go faster. So yeah. they react more quickly to even the smallest changes or stimuli. This is why caffeine can actually give some people symptoms similar to anxiety. Yeehaw. I don't recommend. Anxiety is not great. Interestingly, caffeine can have the reverse effect on some people, just putting them right to sleep. And it all has to do with how your brain handles the chemicals in caffeine. I think that most often, like, the people who go to sleep after drinking caffeine are, like, people with ADHD. I actually researched this a little bit, and the ADHD community has just as diverse responses as neurotypicals. Uh, mm. Some fall asleep, just like, you know, neurotypical people. Some actually get insomnia and can't sleep at all. 
some get absolutely addicted, and some are even just better able to focus on what they're doing. So it acts like almost a mild drug that you would take for your ADHD in the first place. Hmm. And of course, for some it does absolutely nothing, which mood. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just with everything, huh? Mm-hmm. Now, thankfully, caffeine doesn't have a reckless discovery story, but given caffeine's addictive properties and role in modern culture, you can debate whether how we use it today is reckless or not. Yeah, I'm thinking about the stories I've seen of people, like, making coffee with, like, Red Bull or whatever. Don't do that, guys. Please, no. You will completely destroy yourself. Please don't. Despite your stance on caffeine, this next discovery was undoubtedly recklessly used. In 1847, we discovered nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin is a powerful explosive that was discovered by Italian chemist Escanio Sobrero. Although Sobrero was hesitant to share his discovery due to the potential dangers, Alfred Nobel, a Swedish chemist and engineer, soaked nitroglycerin in an absorbing material. Wait, how did uh, Alfred Nobel find out about this if Sobrero didn't want to share? He did share his uh, scientific papers, just with the stipulation and warning that no one should actually use this commercially, which Alfred's father didn't really care about. Um, yeah. I mean, that's just how, like, a lot of business owners are. Exactly! And so that's the risky business corporations. Dynamite was born! Yep. <laughs> of course, this was at the expense of Alfred's brother's life, but this can be blamed more on their father, who ran the factory, than Alfred himself. Now, Alfred, who actually never went to college, experimented with safer ways to handle nitroglycerin, partially because of his brother's death. Yeah, unfortunately, most safety precautions are written in blood. Including the ones at theme parks! Just search up some dark Disney history, they're great. <laughs> mm. There were numerous accidents with handling this new blasting powder, and one of the factories that made it even burned down twice! Well, I mean, yeah. I love that they were like, hmm, took out down our factory, let's do it again, and then they did that twice in a row! It actually took them until the government banned them from making the substance for them to realize, huh, maybe this isn't a smart idea. Who would have thought? Uh, that's just how some CEOs are. They're like, what if we just put everyone in danger and, like, just do it again and again? Exactly. Until someone bans it. And even then. Ironic how Alfred still managed to do that, despite the fact that he was trying to create safer ways to handle it because of his brother's death, and yet, stuff still burned down. Good job, man. Shocking. Good job. Everything was easy to burn down because nitroglycerin is a very sensitive substance for touch and vibrations, and that stuff just causes it to straight up explode. Now dynamite was a slightly safer mixture with nitroglycerin, and that money was incredibly good. Oh, so yeah. yeah. The war departments. Well funded. Exactly. And because of this money and funding, Alfred Nobel went on to fund the Nobel Prizes, and most of his estate went towards it. What I find most ironic is the Nobel Peace Prize, however. You see, during World War II, which admittedly was after Nobel's time, nitroglycerin was a key component in the majority of explosive used. This included the firearms, TNT, RDX, and HMX. These explosives did massive amounts of damage and were used on both sides of the war. The German Luftwaffe used mixtures of RDX, which is even more powerful than TNT, in their aircraft ammunitions. 
1942, the United Kingdom's Royal Air Force was estimated to have used 52,000 tons of RDX every year for the war. Yikes. Yeah, not so great. Not ideal. And, skipping forward a few decades, RDX has also been used in assassinations and terrorist attacks, mostly in India, as recently as 2019. Dang. It has a high kill count. Yeah. RDX isn't really a particularly safe substance to work with either, as it has a history of giving munition workers seizures and can be rather toxic. So, given the bloody history and even the bloody present of Nobel's legacy, though he did not intend it, I truly do see a twisted irony in the Nobel Peace Prize's funding, as it comes from the company responsible for the technology capable of bringing so much destruction later on, and hmm. a company that even brought quite a bit of death during its stay in just mining accidents and transportation accidents in the first place, yeah. let alone the factories. What amazes me most, however, is that nitroglycerin is actually used as a medication to treat chest pain in people with coronary artery disease. And as you can imagine, medical professionals strongly advise against drinking alcohol while on this medication. Even so, it's still used as a blood vessel relaxer. The medical community will never cease to worry and impress me. I only came across this because I was double-checking nitroglycerin's formulas, and lo and behold, the first thing that pops up before the chemical equation was, here's how to use it as medication, and I became extremely concerned. Huh. So, going on from RDX and a bunch of deaths in World War II, let's go on to the next nitrogen discovery that is slightly less steeped in bloodshed, and by slightly less, I mean entirely. In 1883, we discovered liquid nitrogen, which is the thing that you've no doubt heard of. I'm pretty sure we've all seen at least one liquid nitrogen experiment. I mean, it was literally the best part of science class. Yeehaw. Now, Zygmunt Robluski and Carol Elzewiski first accomplished cooling nitrogen gas to a liquid state. And my apologies for absolutely butchering those names. I do not speak any of the Nordic languages. Oof. Now... This wasn't easy at the time to do, given that you have to cool nitrogen gas to negative 196 degrees Celsius or negative 320 degrees Fahrenheit. That's so wild. Like, imagine how cold it'd have to be to, like, reach a solid state. It wasn't until seven years or so later, in the 1890s, that cooling nitrogen to its liquid state could actually be done on an industrial scale. So, more than just two nerds in a lab. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Liquid nitrogen is often used in food packaging or storage, as well as, more recently, fancy tricks at higher-end restaurants. Liquid nitrogen is also integral to many chemical reactions that rely on incredibly low temperatures to take place, as well as doing things like storing cells in the lab. That's neat. Yeah, it really is, and it's kind of fun to see and work with when you're in a lab setting. Gotta be honest here. <laughs> While commercialization of liquid nitrogen is relatively harmless and rather a good source of fun or flamboyance, this final nitrogen discovery is a uh, less so. In 1887, we came up with the process of cyanide gold extraction. Oh boy. This was developed by a man whose name I can pronounce, John Stuart MacArthur. He was a Scottish chemist. Cyanide gold extraction was a very cheap way to purify gold. You basically pour cyanide into the ground, and the cyanide eats away at its surroundings because, you know, cyanide, poison, bad. Yeah. But because of gold's composition, cyanide would actually leave the gold untouched because the gold would just dissolve the cyanide. 
However, pouring cyanide onto the ground, surprisingly, has many harmful side effects. Yeah, I would imagine so, yes. Who would have thought? Yeah. Firstly, other chemicals in the ground can react negatively with cyanide, resulting in harmful gases and chemicals. Gee, who would have thought? Mm. And secondly, this reaction of cyanide and gold results in hydrogen cyanide. Oh, yay. Which is a gas that is not only volatile and flammable, but poisonous to the point of lethality in large enough quantities. So when you extract gold on a large scale, there's more than enough of it to go around. Yeah, so I assume a lot of minor deaths because of this then. Oh, cyanide in this case led to more than just minor deaths. Well, yeah, but they were probably the most significantly affected. Yes, but then we get into the miners with an O who were affected. They could be the same at this point. You know, you're not wrong. <laughs> so, you know. It was the 1900s, we were getting a bit better about it. But Just a little bit. The third issue with cyanide gold extraction, which has to do with more of the minor with no deaths, is that there's a little something called groundwater. And this is water under the surface of the ground that can travel in all sorts of ways. <laughs> Whether it eventually ends up in a spring, or an ocean, or simply farther underground, it does end up somewhere. And a lot of people drink this water even without knowing it. Oh no. That includes us. Yikes. And as one might presume, cyanide poisoning is far from a favorable fate to suffer. Mm. Even acute poisoning can cause seizures and cardiac arrest. Chronic cyanide poisoning, which is when you've taken 20 to 40 parts per million of cyanide for a prolonged period of time, so often just like weeks or something of the sort, that can lead to comas or death. Alright, so I already know, but like, just for any viewers who aren't experienced with this, what is a part per million? So a part per million just has to do with a ratio of volume or mass, as a part of a substance, ratio to the substance overall. So in this case, if you're looking at cyanide and water, water would be that overall substance of the million, and the cyanide would be the part of the million. So, if you have 1 million liters of water, and 20 to 40 liters of that water that's made up of cyanide, you're in trouble. Oh no. The scariest part is when you actually cut down that 1 million liters into something that would actually be something a human would consume in a day. So, though the numbers differ for a person's gender, age, and a plethora of other factors, the average person needs more or less 3 liters of water every day. So, if there's as much as just 10 microliters, or 0.1 milliliters, of cyanide in your daily dose of water, then you're screwed! Ah, great. Yeah, no, this is why uh, cyanide poisoning is an actual issue. Yeah, it's no joke. <laughs> On that dark depressing note, that wraps it up for the world of whack nitrogen discoveries. There are loads more wild scientific discoveries to look into should you ever be intrigued. In fact, the chemistry book by Derek B. Lowe is a great place to start. It's where I got many of these discoveries from, and I would highly recommend it. It's listed in our sources on our Twitter, but if you just search up Derek B. Lowe and the title, The Chemistry Book, you should be able to find this pretty easily. I just found it at my local bookstore. So nitrogen is involved with both the devastating, obviously, and the wonderful saving and taking lives depending on its form. That's just how pretty much all elements are. Exactly. And nitrogen is a very vital component to life, even more so than many other atoms that we have out there. But, just like carbon or even oxygen, meet it in the wrong form and you could meet your end. Yeah. Well, on that note, see you next time!
Thanks for listening, folks.